Good morning. Glad to see all of you here. Welcome you at home. Glad to welcome all of our guests who are here for the first time or haven't been here for a while and are here in person or, uh, or watching online. Glad that you're here with us. We're continuing our series titled Knowing God, and we're going to be looking at God's Word at the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter of, to the Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and follow along. It'll be on the screen as well as we read the first 14 verses. You're now God's word. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some had fallen asleep and passed away. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it's I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In about three months from now, say late May, uh, early June, uh, soon before I leave on my summer sabbatical, David Miles will be officially ordained as our assistant pastor. How about that? David Miles is still in the eco process of ordination, jumping through hoops. I mean, uh, important milestones of preparation for ministry in our denomination. That's what I'm supposed to say, right? Including a retreat uh, coming up uh, in early spring. It's sort of a finishing school for pastors. There's obstacle courses. There's various other hazing that goes on. And then a final interview before it's made official. Sarah Goodell will be following uh, in the fall. Now, I want you to imagine that you're one of the elders sitting in on David's final interview before he crosses the threshold to become an official pastor, the theological integration interview. I've, I've been part of these interviews, and they're no joke. A title they give me is The Assessor. I felt much more like The Inquisitor. Uh, grilling folks, but David, you're going to do great. You're going to do great. Okay, so after he nails the interview, you're sitting in on the interview. He nails all the questions, 
at the end of every interview, the assessors always ask a question, is there, is there anything you'd like to add before uh, we go back in back room for deliberations and determine your fate? Now, imagine David Miles, after going through this whole long, arduous process, his chance to speak, his last words before you are one of the elders to make the decision. And he looks at you and he says, well, I don't do funerals. What? A, a pastor who says, I don't do funerals? What's the matter with you, David? How dare you, sir? How dare? Get out of here. Ushers, get, just, just get him out of here. Can you imagine someone saying that? Sorry, Dave, don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Can you imagine a pastor who says, I don't do funerals? Have you ever heard of a pastor who would be so presumptuous to say that? I don't do funerals? Have you ever heard of, 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 of a leader, a, a religious leader, a pastor saying such things? I've only heard of one, and his name was Jesus. Jesus did not do funerals. He only did resurrections. Amen? In fact, Jesus ruined every funeral he ever went to. They, they stopped inviting him. There's going to be a funeral. You show up, there's, everyone's dressed in black, and there's, there's a terrible food. It's sitting out, and the mayo's just baking in the sun. But it, you know, everyone's crying. There's boxes of tissues everywhere. And then Jesus comes and resurrects the dead. That was not on the menu. We're here to mourn and cry and weep and console, and Jesus would ruin everything. Whenever Jesus showed up to a funeral, there was resurrection power that was expressed. And so we have in the Gospel of Luke one such account, a, a, a woman who was about to bury her son until Jesus brought him back from the dead. When Peter's mother-in-law had one foot in the grave, Jesus showed up, healed her, and she was moments later in the kitchen, with, in the kitchen whipping up dinner for everybody. John writes that when Jesus heard that his dear friend Lazarus was deathly ill. And Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, this was a family that Jesus deeply loved. They were, they were an oasis in the wilderness for him. They, they were a place for sabbatical, for rest, where Jesus could, could get away. He gave to them this very heavy and providential weight to carry is when Jesus heard that news, he waited an additional couple of days before showing up. And he saw the anguish and pain of his sisters and the crying out of the community. And we have recorded the shortest verse in the Bible. What is it, kids? Jesus wept. We see real love compassion, but that we see power because Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. Come on out of there, Lazarus. Get those grave cloths off of you. And then at his own borrowed tomb, just on layaway for a few days, the sisters came to tend to Jesus's body and that funeral didn't stick either. And the gospel records that there are two men that appear. They were angels. They were messengers from the Lord. They said, 
to the ladies, why do you look for the living among the dead? He was pronounced dead, buried, and gone. But up from the grave, he arose. You don't want me to sing, right? That was pretty bad. That was was rough. (laughs) With a mighty victory, he rose. No, no, sorry. I won't do it. Sorry. I said, I promised I'd stop. He lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. Okay. He arose. This is central to our faith, people. This is the cornerstone. This is the hinge moment in history. But Paul needed to remind those Corinthians of these facts. Imagine Paul in Ephesus, imprisoned there, writing a letter to this church in Corinth that is a divided church, divided over petty rivalries, moral failings. This church was really, really dysfunctional. Maybe we should do a series in this. Maybe we shouldn't do a series in 1 Corinthians because they had all kinds of issues. Idolatry stemming from all manner of misunderstanding and theological confusion. It really comes down to this. They were misunderstanding knowing God in the resurrection that God saves. And so here Paul at the penultimate, the second to last chapter of this long letter, he addresses the issue. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He's saying if Jesus hasn't been raised, pastors have nothing to preach. We've got nothing to offer and nothing for you to believe. Nothing that's really worthwhile. What's the point of even holding a Christian funeral or memorial service if there isn't real hope? The Christian faith stands or falls on the facts and the testimonies of the real bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in time and space, in history. And these people, even though many of them say, okay, well, I, can, I can accept that Jesus did rise, but Paul, some of us have fallen asleep. Some of them have died, and they were expecting Jesus to come back by the time this letter was written. They were starting to doubt their own faith. They started to operate as if it's not really real. It's just a good story. What we'll see, the resurrection God saves, is the hinge point of history. It's the very centerpiece of the gospel, and it changes everything. And so in chapter 15, Paul does two things. He, he offers here a great summary, a two-part summary of the gospel. The gospel always has at least, in presenting it, at least two parts to it. The first part is the content. Like what is, the, what is the, the good news that you're communicating? What's the content? That's verses 1 to 8. We get the content, and we'll see six parts of that content. I'll lay that out to you. But the second part, which would be kind of overlap with verse 8 to 11, is the testimony of transformation. How how does this make a difference in our life? I've been troubled to see a terrible trend, and even in recent news, of the fall from a place of honor of Christian leaders and speakers. And it seems to be this terrible trend that 
those that are the most gifted in communicating the content of the gospel, who've had the most influence in writing or speaking or being lifted up as the exemplars of how to communicate good news, and it doesn't match with their life, lifestyle, testimony, things that are hidden. Paul here, we see, brings the two together. Many of the problems that these people in Corinth had that were spiritually minded folks, they were religious folks, they they wanted to pursue and, and know God, and yet they hadn't experienced the transforming power of the resurrection. And that would be my hope for us this morning. That this wouldn't just be information transfer, but that there would also be a spiritual empowering of you and you at home. They had no problem believing that after you die, you go someplace. Many people, in fact, at that time believed that, well, there is some form of an afterlife. Maybe there's a shadowy underworld, or maybe you go someplace else. Why? Because that's what the culture taught. Paul starts the letter by saying the cross is is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. And he's talking to these people that, that have heard him preach the gospel, but they are forgetting the actual move of God's Spirit in their midst. So after cleaning up all the problems in the first uh, 14 uh, chapters, like, you know, clean up on aisle five, terrible sin and, and unspeakable things happening in the church, he gets down to brass tacks and teaches the gospel again. So let's look at it. Verse 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. The only gospel that saves is the gospel Paul received from Jesus Christ that's testified in the Old Testament that was preached by the apostles that is now spreading at this time across the known world the testimony that is now being recorded and written down that will eventually become the New Testament, only the content of this message and the working of the Spirit through it is what saves. Otherwise, Paul says, you've believed in nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zero. Pack up and go home. And then he goes on to spell out what that content is in verses 3 and 4. Let's look there at the content of the message. Before we do, I just want to take a little bit of an aside. Are you with me? You're all with me? I love how Pastor Frank said that last week. Are you with? Everyone's like, pins and needles, listening to everywhere. Are you with me? Like, we are, we are. Okay. This might be the only opportunity this whole week that you at home and you in this room, in this auditorium, have to hear the gospel communicated to you. And then the whole rest of the week, you're bombarded by messages from the world of all sorts of other things and pressures. And I was very delighted to announce uh, through our NVC Connect newsletter this past week that our elders have invested heavily in uh, a new space at church for recording and for p- producing more gospel content to go out from our church. And I explained to you uh, in that newsletter, if you didn't see, I'll just say briefly, what it is that we're adopting a hybrid model of ministry where we lift up both our on-site ministry 
in Sunday school coming back next week, and that's an exciting thing, and also our, our online ministries. Why? Because people are hungry for spiritual truth, for insight, for community, for answers, and it won't always happen on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. And so the elders have seen the, the need to produce more material, have more opportunity for our team to record, to video, and then put that information out there and that encouragement and those testimonies and those stories of what God's doing in our community out widely. So Paul has here six elements of gospel content that he spells out. Let me lay them out for you. He talks about the Messiah died for our sin, was buried, raised from the dead, all according to Scripture. Those are the six points. So number one, First, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is his personal name. Christ is his title. And and Christ is simply a Greek word for the the Hebrew word of Messiah, foretold in the Old Testament. Here's the part that would shock everyone who knew of the coming Messiah. The Messiah, number two, died. Christ's passion and death highlighting his humanity. A question came up in one of our uh, small groups a couple weeks ago discussing, can God die? It came back to me that at least one of our small groups had that question. I love that these are the kinds of questions that we can wrestle with in community and and, and work through. Well, what is God's word? Let's, Let's look at scripture. Let's figure this out. Can God die? So allow me a moment. Maybe if some of you have that same question from uh, from last week's message, let me clarify. In his divine essence, God cannot die. God is immortal. But because God the Son assumed humanity in his human nature, he is capable of suffering and death as part of his atoning work on the cross. Romans 8, 3 and 4 for reference. He assumed the likeness, Scripture will speak of, of sinful flesh, in order to condemn sin in and through his own body. Number three, the Messiah died for our sins. The cross is not simply an example of love. And someone says, you know, gosh, wow, what a great example of of love. I guess that's how I should... No, it's more than that. The cross is the atoning substitutionary work on the cross to pay for your sin and your sin and mine and for the world. God's grace to send his son on our behalf. He was legally reckoned a sinner, though he was without sin, so that he might pay the penalty for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And and I mentioned this last bit will be how scripture speaks to it, we have the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It says this, foretelling of the coming of Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone into his own path, but the Lord laid the iniquity of us all on him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was, he has put him to grief. By his stripes, we are what? We're healed. So the Messiah died for our sins. 
and was buried. No doubt about it. Jesus was laid in a tomb, as we say. But then number five, he rose on the third day. And that fact changes everything. Romans 14.89 connects this content. Like, okay, I get it up here. It connects it with changing everything in our lives. Paul writes in Romans 14.8 and 9, he says, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Faith, my friends, is not wish fulfillment. Some sort of psychological satisfying of a unconscious desires or dreams or fantasies. Christian faith is a reasoned faith. Yes, it's heartfelt, but it's reasonable, and it takes in all of the evidence into account. So number six, the scriptures are evidence of this, of all of this. And look what Paul says. He speaks of witnesses, eyewitness accounts of post-resurrection appearances. This letter was written sometime around, they think, around 53 to 55 AD. So 20 years on after these events. Paul says there's at least 500 people who saw Jesus alive. Most of them are still alive. You could go ask them yourself. And you know what? Their story hasn't changed. The events of January 6th and, and all the video and all the photography, we already are confused. Well, what happened? And I'm not sure. And people are divided over that. 20 years on, the testimony didn't change. The evidence was there. They didn't change their story. One of the greatest emphases that we have to have is understanding the, the historical account that after those events, the gospel spread like wildfire through the known world. Here it is 20 years on or so, Paul has planted these churches. And in the years to come, it will spread even more. It will be the greatest movement in human history. Why? Because it was based on facts and evidence and backed up by the testimony of Scripture. Paul says, Peter saw Jesus, and the twelve, that would include Judas's replacement, Matthias. He says, go and talk to them. And then he says, James, Jesus' half-brother. And then he says, and even I, one abnormally born, and we'll speak of that for just a moment. All this evidence of the content. Now, Paul doesn't just give the content. He then says, how it changes him. He gives a personal testimony. He makes it personal. Look at verses 8 to 10. One of the qualifications of, of apostleship is, is that one has seen the risen Lord. Paul says, I, I've seen Jesus. He turned me into an apostle, and I was changed forever in at least these six ways. Number one, humility. A true believer in Christ who's been transformed by resurrection power is made to be humble. Again, I mentioned abnormally born. What a title to give oneself. Like, I'm just, I don't fit. Do you feel like you don't fit? Paul says, I, it's not me. It's God's put me here. I'm the least, he says. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. That's true humility. Number two, there's honesty. Regarding Paul's past sin, he says, 
I persecuted the church. He, he, he's honest. He, he, he accepts it. He doesn't hold back. You know, if someone tries to, well, I'm sorry if I offended you, if the, if the words I use somehow upset you, but it's your own problem. Like, that's not an apology. Like, be honest what actually happened. He's humble. He's honest. There's repentance. He says, I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, God's transforming grace gave him, number four, a new identity. I worked harder, or excuse me, I am what I am. Humility, honesty, repentance. There's a real new identity. I am what I am. I went from being a persecutor of the church to the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says this is all number five for the saving work of Christ, laboring diligently. Someone who's truly transformed by the Lord wants to use their time, talents, treasure, all that they have to make a difference for the kingdom of Christ. That's what we see here in Paul. He says, I worked harder than all of them, but then the last effect, a servant heart. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and what you believed. Are these the kind of marks you'd want to see in a pastor? Well, I hope you see it in me and our team. Humility, honesty, repentance when we mess up, clinging to our new identity, laboring diligently, and being a servant, not needing accolades or attention. Whether it's I or they, whoever gets the credit, it doesn't matter. What matters is that God is glorified. I would encourage you to read the rest of chapter 15 on your own or with your family or your small group this week. Verses 12 to 34, Paul will go on to show the the seamless connection between the resurrection of Christ, which in this case was 20 some odd years before the letter is written, the, the connection between that resurrection power, the power that these, these people in Corinth can experience, and then on into the future until Christ comes again. And here we are, 2,000 years, and we are, I'll tell you the date. You want to know when he's coming? Well, we're, we're one day short, uh, closer. We're one day closer. Yesterday, right here, Rob and I had the solemn honor to officiate a funeral for a 20-year-old. No parent should ever have to bury their child. We live in the already but not yet. And as great and as glorious as we can imagine that Jesus never did funerals, only resurrections, we still live this side of paradise in this in-between time. Jesus wept when he saw the pain and anguish of Mary and Martha and the community. He had compassion. He shares that compassion with you in your pain. But Jesus also had tears in his eyes for a different reason. It's because as he looked out on the crowd, he knew so many of them did not know him to be the Messiah. And they would refuse to know him as the way, the truth, the life, and the resurrection. 
and it grieved him to his soul, to his core. Dear ones, dear ones, the repeated example of Jesus' defeat of death is God's way of reassuring us that Jesus has resurrection power. We need to be saved in every way, including our unbelief and our alienation from one another. And I'm deeply concerned with the level of functional atheism that I see in the church of Jesus Christ. Functional atheism. Yes, we know God exists. He created the heavens and the earth. Yes, I believe the Bible is God's word that paradise awaits. Yes, 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 Pastor Pete, to all these sermons about knowing God. And yet, take stock of your life. How often do you function as an atheist? As if there is no God. We worry too much We control too much. We demand too much. We run after God's substitutes too much. We find our entertainment and pleasure and our downtime in the same way that our non-believing neighbors find their leisure, their rest, and their travel. We do all these atheistic things because for some of us, we've forgotten God's presence And power is available right now. And so before we leave this morning, for those of you here in this room and for you at home, I want us to engage in that resurrection power if you believe in Jesus. But friends, if some of you are existing in a tomb of your own making, you know that you're doing things, thinking things that do not bring life, that are sinful and wrong and wicked, repent right now in Jesus' name. Say, Lord Jesus, my Christ, Messiah, Lord, forgive me. Get your feet out of that grave. Throw that shovel away. Look to Jesus for grace to pardon your sins to empower holy living. And let's get personal with one another. This week, how many thoughts did you have this week? Or decisions made, or or habits you did just habitually, without even thinking. You just, just do what you do, get up and just do it again the next day, and do it again the next. That omitted the Lord. Resurrection power is available to you right now. He has life-giving power for you right now, today. Jesus doesn't do funerals. He does resurrection. He can raise you out of the tomb of your doubt, your fear, your anxieties, your discouragement, And he alone can bring that new life to you. Now, would you like that? Would you like more of that? You want that for someone you're sitting beside, someone at home? Let's pray for it now as Rob comes out.
Lord God, we know the gospel isn't only something that we embrace, that we receive, as Paul says in verse 1, but it's also in which we stand. So God, I pray that the content of the gospel will be made clear in every church in this region and around the world, but Lord God, even as we do our, our, our best to communicate, Lord God, I pray that there would be true life change and that it would start with me. God, hear your people cry out to you now. Save us, O oh God. Save us. You are mighty to save. Forever, Lord God, you are our salvation, our only hope. I wish we know, God, that the end of this life is not the end. We step into eternity, even in walking with you, God. We are even now already in your kingdom. It's already happening now. And Lord God, that even in the midst of our pain and loss and suffering, the walls seem to be closing in. Now we can cry out to you and say, in Jesus' name, bring life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.